I'm serving as uh, one of two pastors in uh, a Canadian Reformed Church in Burlington. And uh, for the summer, I've been uh, making my way through the uh, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. These messages or sermons to uh, seven churches uh, in Asia Minor back in uh, the first century. And we're going to look at the uh, message to Pergamum from chapter 2 of Revelation. Uh, picking up the reading at verse 12 through uh, 17. You'll notice that each of the of the messages begin with a little reference back to the vision that John has in chapter 1 of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in this vision is revealing his plan for um, the rest of history uh, to John and to, and to us. And I'm just going to read one verse from, from verse 16 because this relates to uh, the particular part of that vision that John chooses to include in this message to, or Jesus uh, includes in his message to this church in Pergamum. So it's verse 16 of chapter 1. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And then we'll read from uh, verse 12 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, uh, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, uh, written which no one knows except him who receives it. You'll notice in the bulletin uh, four points that I've actually been using for all the different sermons, all the different messages on these letters, these messages to the church. And uh, we'll look first at Jesus in Pergamum, and then he commends them, he complains against them, and then he gives them some words of conviction at, uh, at the end. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the issue in, in Pergamos, which is the third city, so if you think about um, if you think about this part of, of Asia Minor back then, which is now modern-day Turkey, and uh, Patmos is this little island just off of the coast, just a little bit to the west, and John is there for the sake of his faith. Some of the apostles were executed. Uh, John is probably a pretty old man, and he's been exiled to this, to this island, probably serving there in some sort of uh, pretty difficult circumstances, maybe forced to do some sort of physical manual labor. Uh, but there he receives this powerful set of visions that uh, feature Jesus Christ and the revelation of his plan 
for the rest of time and for all of uh, humanity. And uh, as part of that, there's these these uh, sermons to actual churches. It's not just that there were seven churches, it's just representative. Numbers are pretty important in the book of Revelation and representative of all the different churches. So the gospel was going out after Jesus' death and resurrection. The apostles and other disciples were going and preaching and setting up churches and establishing elders and leaders. And, uh, and they were growing and the number of churches were, uh, were growing but very much a minority of the inhabitants of these cities like Ephesus and now Pergamos. They're going from Ephesus to uh, Smyrna in a, in a clockwise direction to Pergamos, and it will continue to come kind of, uh, if I had a map, I'd, I'd show you right now, but you can, you can check it out yourself. Now, Ephesus was the first church, the first message, and it was a pretty tough message. They had a problem kind of the opposite of Pergamos, uh, they were big on truth. They were big on doctrine. They were big on even um, dealing with those who were false prophets and making sure that the truth was defended and those who were enemies of the truth were dealt with. But they had a real problem with love. So they used to be a very hospitable, loving congregation. They, they combined this love for truth with a love for people, and people could tell. But slowly but surely, they lost that love for Christ and that, uh, that love for each other and that love for those outside. They became hardened because of life difficulties and because of the persecution they were, uh, they were enduring. And it's like the opposite in Pergamos, uh, where they, they seem to definitely have a love for people and uh, a love for one another, but they had started to fail in their stand for truth. And what, we, what we're going to see in this, in this message is a slow Drift, and that's what I want us also to ask for ourselves and for this particular congregation. Um, how do you know when a slow drift starts to happen in your life? Because when you end up in a in a in a bad place or a dangerous place as a church or as an individual, it doesn't just happen at once. It's a slow compromise. I like this this quote from C.S. Lewis. I forget what book it's in, but uh, he writes this: "You will say there these are very small sins." talking about some particular sins. But it does not matter how small the sins are, are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards could do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So that's how we're going to take this message, the sermon, uh, to this church. How many years ago now? Like 1,900 years ago? More? And how we're going to apply that to, to our lives. Let's look really briefly at how Jesus identifies himself to this church uh, in, verse, in verse 12. Jesus Christ in uh, Pergamum or, or Pergamos. Usually there are two descriptions here. There's only one. And it's rather stark. It's this picture of, of Jesus having a two-edged sword. But not even in his hand, but coming out of his mouth. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's threatening. It's comforting to know that their Savior is the one who comes with the sword. It draws on Old Testament uh, images like in, in Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 11. 
uh, pictures of the Messiah who would come, who Isaiah describes in various places as a suffering servant, but also one who will come uh, in judgment. And then you get this intimidating picture of what John sees of this one with this two-edged sword. The overwhelming portrait we have of Jesus in the Gospels, right, is one of someone who is gentle and lowly, uh, one who is laying down his life for his friends, one who is patient and, and generally kind. The, the, the times in which he, in his ministry, uh, displays uh, more, of this, more of this judgment side of who he is, uh, it's very rare. But it's clear that when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to come to judge. He will come as the King of kings and Lord of lords. No longer a servant who has come to give his life away, who's come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, but one who will come to judge. He's, come to, he's, he's going to come and win his people for himself for all eternity and deal with all darkness and sin and put it away from the new heavens and, and the new earth. Uh, uh, I don't have a picture of the... Uh, of the sword, but you can, you can look it up. The particular sword is an extremely intimidating sword. Uh, we use screens at our church, so I had a, a picture of this man. I found a website where a man collects hundreds and hundreds of swords, and he had a particular sword that's connected, that's the same as this, this sword from, from Revelation chapter 2, and it's a vicious-looking sword. You can imagine it both, both um, thrusting, slicing, basically doing whatever uh, you would imagine a sword would do. A display of real power, a display in, in that age in particular of the ability to and the authority to judge. The sword was a, a real display of, of Roman power, so Roman authority. And they spoke of you know, the Pax Romana, Roman peace, but Roman peace came at the edge of a sword, right? They brutalized their, uh, their enemies in, uh, in many different ways. But Jesus is the one in Revelation who says, I'm over all of those kings. My kingdom is, is the kingdom that's going to last forever. Every other kingdom is going to topple uh, before the sway of the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ. And so this is both comforting that the Savior who's writing to them, the Savior that died for them, the Savior that died for us, is the one that's speaking to them. He's the one who's returning. But he's got this vicious sword coming out of his mouth, so he's got something to say. And... Uh, uh, they and us need to constantly be listening to what Jesus Christ has said. Uh, taking seriously um, how he reveals himself and his plan and his will uh, in, his, in his word. In particular for this church, uh, where they're starting to slide when it comes to compromise with the truth. So secondly, what are some things that Jesus commends in uh, in? In Pergamos, and I, uh, I encourage every leader here, every parent, every friend, if you want to talk to somebody about something that you're concerned about, start with what they're doing well. And uh, I can imagine this, uh, this is certainly the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he commends them. I know where you live. I know where you dwell. I know your works. I understand everything you're going through. This is the um, incarnated Christ, now glorified, and still speaking 
from glory in this dream, I understand. I know your circumstances. I know your challenges. Uh, Even with what I'm going to have to say critically, don't doubt that I understand what it's like to be where you are. He says the same thing to us, to you as a a church, to you in your own personal struggles and uh, difficulties and challenges right now. It might seem like Jesus Christ is distant and that he doesn't understand, he can't understand, or he's not there. And uh, the word comes, this powerful word from the King of Kings, resurrected and exalted, I know where you live uh, and I know your works. And he uh, identifies in very stark terms here, it's, it's where Satan's throne is in the middle there of verse, of verse 13. And if, if you would look at some, uh, both some ruins of where Pergamos was, or some, you can find some images online of what it, would look, what it would have looked like back then, you would have seen a city set on a hill with citadels and everything else, but in particular with altars and temples to their gods. So that from all around, as you were approaching Pergamos, you would know what they stood for. And that's what, that's what John is saying. This is where Satan's throne is. So you're there, identifying with Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel, but, but what's, what's important in Pergamos is all these other gods. This is where Satan's throne is. It's, de- it's demonic. And it wasn't just it wasn't just gods that you would have temples to and offer sacrifices to and all that kind of pagan worship, but also the, the worship of the king, the worship of the emperor, the worship of the Caesars. And right beside the temples to, to their gods, you'd have a temple to Caesar. And uh, that, kind of work, that kind of worship was a, a regular part of regular life, of normal life in that culture. And... Uh, when he writes where Satan's throne is, they'd, they'd be saying, amen. We, that's what we feel. Uh, we feel today like we're kind of in the, um, a little bit of the failing embers of a Christian society, right? We, oft, we often pray that our society would, would reconnect with its Christian roots, but we're still living with the benefits of those Christian roots, right? Uh, compared to the church in Pergamos, very much a, a minority in a, in a, in a pagan and uh, an antagonistic um, society against what they were preaching and what they were living. So I know where you live, but where you live is where Satan lives in a set-up shop. And I get it, and I know it, and I'm there with you. And he commends them because they held fast to his name. And even when Antipas, who was a known member of the church, probably a leader or a pastor in this church, uh, he became a martyr. And Jesus said, I I saw that. I commend you for for that. And you held fast to my name. You didn't bend. Even when you had no idea who it would happen to next. And so here's this impressive city in so many different ways. Uh, known and respected and celebrated for its civil life, its uh, religious life, its economic life. It's really the Christians, this small band of believers that sat on a hill. And uh, this, this is the one that the God of the universe notices and walks with and loves and treasures. And they're faithful. 
I want to ask one question before we, uh, before we move on. Uh, because he commends them for holding fast to his name and not denying the faith. Uh, there, there are many things I think I can, I can speak from being in, in, our, in our culture, in our, the culture of our Reformed churches. There are many things that we, that we, um, we celebrate as churches. We celebrate our, our style of worship, perhaps, like a, a reverent style of worship. We certainly celebrate being a covenant community um, and, and uh, advocating the catechesis and Christian education of our children. That's, that's a big one. And um, we, we certainly, in many ways, uh, advocate uh, mission work, uh, care for the, the poor in our communities. Uh, let me just ask the question, whether, uh, whether we praise and celebrate well this kind of biblical witness, this, this, this kind of bold holding fast to the name of Jesus Christ and not denying the faith. What I'm asking is, do we talk often enough in our conversations, young and old, with the people we've talked to about Jesus Christ in the past week? Are those things that we, that we celebrate, that, we, that enter into our conversations, um, that enter into the kind of things that we, that we hold up as, as something we're doing well or something that Jesus Christ would be pleased with or something even that we're pleased with, that we understand to be an important part of our community and uh, our witness and and our service. And Jesus commends them and would commend us for that as well. A city set on a hill in an increasingly um, unfriendly culture, right? Unfriendly society towards the Christian faith, especially when you're talking about sharing your personal views on Scripture and Jesus in the public sphere, right? If they had just been quiet and maintained a kind of a private Christianity, uh, certainly people like Antipas wouldn't have gotten into as much trouble. And you can avoid trouble, you can avoid uh, suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ by holding your faith private, but that doesn't fit with what Jesus commends here. So Jesus commends them, and uh, He commends them in very encouraging ways, but He also does, thirdly, He does complain or uh, criticize. Something's going on in the church in uh, Pergamos. Uh, I remember uh, a video. I don't even know if Oprah Winfrey still has a talk show or on TV or not. But she was on, at one point hosting a Christian leader for uh, a discussion on religion. And it was a Christian leader um, uh, who was talking about his faith. At one point she asked him, uh, do you believe Christianity is the truth? And of course, he, like he was an Orthodox believer, and he responded, yes. And her response was, I suppose that's, that is okay, as long as you're not saying that your truth is the only truth, or that, or that your truth is uh, superior to my truth or any other person's truth out there. And uh, I mean, this is a few years ago now, but it's, it's, uh, it was anticipating a time in which we live in which there's a powerful pressure not just to bow to the kind of the zeitgeist, the spirit of our, um, of our age, uh, but to refuse to say that the truth of the Scriptures is actually the only truth, and that by advocating for this truth about Jesus Christ actually, actually leaves other potential or um, antagonistic truths as not, no longer being truth that becomes truth. 
more and more difficult. The, the idea of uh, uh, just a personal truth being the be-all and end-all of every, personal, um, every person out there, that's a kind of a cultural anthem. So keep your, keep your religion private and to yourself. Keep it in the walls of your church or your home, and that's fine. But to then be, become known as someone who actually lives out that faith in our culture and defends it and is willing to, in, in some way, suffer for the sake, that's something that is, is, uh, people are uncomfortable with. And what was going on in Pergamos is that there was a real compromising of the truth. And it was uh, a gentle slope, but it was happening. And not only was there pockets of this going on, but the rest of the church, the leadership of the church, was not dealing with it very well. So you see the reference there to uh, Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Now, that brings up an Old Testament story the kids could probably tell us better than we know ourselves because they learned these things uh, in school and catechism and the like. But uh, just broad strokes, right? Uh, the people are almost to the promised land. They're, they're near to Moab. And Balak, the king of Moab, is incredibly concerned because they're like two million strong and they, they present a clear and present danger to the existence of Moab. And he hires a man, a diviner, a kind of a prophet of sorts, magician of sorts named Balaam to come and to curse uh, the people of Israel. And supposedly he seems to have been successful in this in the past. He offers them a lot of money to come and he comes. But on the way, uh, he's... he's accosted by God in the form of an angel uh, with a sword, and he tells, him to, uh, he tells him he has a bit of a different purpose for Balaam. So every time Balaam come, steps up to curse the people of Israel, he ends up blessing them. It's an incredibly um, humorous and yet uh, just astounding picture of God's faithfulness to his people. But at the end of the story, Balak is kind of He's kind of uh, dressing Balaam down for his failure. He's probably asking for his money back. Uh, and Balaam says, I got one more idea for you. Send your, send your women over to Israel. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out better for you than all of the curses uh, I could have brought against them. And that's what happens. And, and they commit sexual immorality. And, and the, the, uh, the, the heart of, of Israel as they're about to enter the promised land, is, is, is compromised. And this is, in some sense, what's going on in, in Pergamos, because in the temples, uh, it, was not, it was not simply worshiping the pagan gods, but it was intermixed with, with sexual immorality. So the people, some of the people in Pergamos were eating in, in pagan temples. It was, a, it was a normal part of, your, of the society to go to the temples you meet business partners there, you meet family there, you bring an offering, and then you sit down uh, for a meal with, with the food that was sacrificed to the idols or the leftover food, and you, uh, you enjoy a party, you enjoy fellowship, uh, you enjoy a time to make business deals and the like. You might have tables in one place if you uh, belong to the union of the farmers, and you're there, and you're talking about work, and you're sharing ideas, and you're hiring people, and, and uh, making deals and all the like. And it was very difficult to maintain like a love for Christ only and worshiping Christ only and not engage in those, in those feasts because you were expected to. And then you're expected to bring a sacrifice. If you don't sacrifice to the gods, maybe the gods are going to, uh, are gonna, you know, they're going to curse us in some way. 
and uh, you're a farmer and you don't, you don't worship the farmer gods or you don't worship your carpenter, you don't worship the god of the, of the carpenters, you don't worship the, uh, the, the god of fertility. And uh, those gods are going to judge us. And so the Christians were, uh, were really uh, suspected, they were, um, they were seen as on the edge of society and against, against Pergama society. So they were being led into and compromising, first of all, eating, the, eating in the pagan temples, but also the sexuality that, that was part of those pagan worship feasts. They were also engaging in that. One of my favorite uh, musicians recently came out with a single, and uh, in the middle of the single, because he, uh, he's dealing with spiritual issues, he says, I was entangled with the world. And that that's kind of summarizes uh, what's going on in Pergamos. They're starting to be entangled uh, with the world. And just didn't just happen once. Um, it was, it was, became an ordinary part of their life. And uh, it was hard to separate their, their, uh, their life on Sunday from their life during the week, and they were engaging in, in this, kind of, this kind of worthiness. And, you, and the sense is you, they convinced themselves slowly but surely it was okay. It was necessary. If you wanted to be a Christian and maintain your Christian faith, uh, to compromise a little bit. They might say things like this. You know, they're not real gods anyways. Like these gods, we, we know the one true living God. These are not gods. They're false. So if I worship them, is it really worship? And they convince themselves with arguments uh, like that. In terms of the sexual sins, perhaps it was downplayed a little bit. And if you know anything about, about sin, uh, you know that sin doesn't stop. It doesn't end up where it begins there's not repentance, fighting against sin, uh, putting on the armor of God, you know, it, a connection to God the Father through prayer, repentance, and confession, and asking for the Holy Spirit for help. Sin doesn't stay where it is. It, it, it devises new ways uh, to, to, to swallow us and to bring us down, right? And this is a slow but steady decline into, uh, into faithlessness, into uh, compromise. It's the gradual, gentle slope uh, downward. Well, what does this have to do with us? Balaam, Balak, Pergamos, <laughs> pagan temples. Well, it's, it's, it's the current, contemporary, ongoing whisper in our ears that tells us that a little compromise is okay. A little, a little compromise in, um, in, in sexual purity, it's, it's not as bad as the world around us. So as the world crashes downwards, uh, a little gentle compromise is no longer considered quite as, quite as serious. A whisper in our ears that we're taking things too seriously. Uh, truth is fine to believe on paper, but it's got to meet the real world. And when it comes down to business, you've got you to smooth the corners. You've got you to take some compromises that in a, in a passage you would never have thought about doing and the devil presents all kinds of alternatives to denying ourselves taking up our crosses suffering for the sake of the gospel uh, suffering for the sake of just a, a life of integrity and following king jesus perhaps you've argued that it's okay to indulge in pornography because it's not hurting anybody anyways These are, the kind of, these are the kind of suggestions that Satan whispers in our ears. It's not like the first time we believe him or act in it, but maybe the second or third or twentieth time. 
we start to defend uh, what we're doing. It's a gentle slope towards compromise. If you've had any, um, any time in your life of self-evaluation, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the gentle road towards a lack of integrity. Um, in our, our business affairs, it's a gentle slope in terms of how much you're drinking or eating or how deep your anger or jealousy goes. And it could be little sins, like C.S. Lewis said, whatever the devil needs. The gentle slope downward. You get to a place where you didn't end up, you didn't think you would end up. You couldn't predict that you would have, you would have, you would have said, I would never end up there. But your life is more controlled by anger and jealousy. And it's more controlled by, by uh, uh, sexual fantasy. And the threat here, certainly for people like Antipas, it was just bow the knee. I mean, he'd be called, he'd be uh, reported by somebody, they would arrest him, he'd be given a chance to recant. Just offer a little incense to Caesar. How hard is that? You can keep your faith. Just a little compromise. Just, Just say that Caesar is Lord. You don't have to say that Jesus Christ is not Lord, but Caesar is kind of more Lord than Jesus. And so uh, Jesus Christ, with the sword of the truth in his mouth, speaks some pretty hard words of criticism um, and complaint to this church in Pergamos. And also, uh, lovingly, as our, as our Savior and Lord, the one who has given his life on our behalf, comes and confronts us. It's kind of a, kind of a holy kindness, right? When someone comes and tells you the truth, and seeks to warn you before it gets, it gets worse. So Jesus complains. Finally, Jesus convicts them because he convicts them. What, what, what's the answer? I had a counseling prof one time that, that said, if you're, if you're ever kind of contemplating or you're counseling somebody, you're counseling a friend or something, they're wondering about what to do, or you're dealing with your own personal life, you're wondering, is this serious? He said, when in doubt, repent. So generally, if something's going on in your life and, and you're sensing regret or shame or something, that... that it's probably the Spirit telling you it's time to repent for something. So that's certainly Jesus' uh, recommendation. By the way, verse uh, 15, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, it's very hard to determine if this is anything different from what we've been talking about. So I, I'm assuming uh, that it's the same compromise that we've been talking about with the sin of Balaam and uh, Balak. But in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly. And will fight against them uh, with the sword of my mouth. So take a stand for the truth. Deal with those who are, who are uh, spreading this, this sense of compromise by their life and by their, by their words. Um, and you need to repent. They need to repent or I'm going to come against them in, um, in judgment. And alongside of our, our brotherly responsibility to build up and encourage is sometimes to come and to exhort and rebuke one another. This doesn't excuse a kind of a judgmentalism or a harshness as though the way that we, the way that we speak is not, in, not important. Speak the truth in love, right, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4. But sometimes you do need to come and uh, to rebuke. This is, not this, this is not the picture of Jesus we, we generally want to think of, a sword uh, coming out of its mouth. But uh, it's the real Jesus, it's the real king, 
It's the one who is uh, gentle and lowly, the one who is patient with sinners, the one who is, who is still in this era of grace, holding out the hope of the gospel so so many more can come into the kingdom. But it's one that uh, this baby who was born in Bethlehem is the one who will come to reign, the one who's reigning now, and the one who's going to reign for all eternity. Now he gives two... Uh, two rewards at the end. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then at the end of each sermon, he talks about the reward for those who overcome. It's the same as at the beginning, here's what you're doing well. You know, for every word of criticism, you, you tell one of your children, what do they tell you? Just give five words of commendation, right? That's kind of the math. And not only does he give encouraging words, here's what you're doing well, but he also then ends, here's your reward. Here's, here's what I am going to graciously present to you, uh, to those who overcome. I'm going to give some of the hidden manna to eat to those who overcome. Uh, you know, bring us back to the, uh, the manna in the wilderness that God gave to his people who are hungry. He gave them water from rocks, and he gave them quail from the skies, and he gives them manna. And they wake up in the morning and there's this kind of sweet, white, powder-like material on the ground that they could gather up and, and eat, and it was, and it was delicious. Um, and that, that came in the middle of their complaining. It came in the middle of their, of their compromise. He's like, so there's compromise, but I know what you're going through. I know how difficult it is. I know it's, been, it's hard to be a Christian in the first century. I know how lonely it is to be, to be a believer. Um, but just like your forefathers ate bread in the, the middle of the wilderness, the middle of the struggle, uh, that's what I'm going to give you. That sort of reward, that, that sort of nourishment. And then also, finally, a white stone. It's also, it's difficult to know exactly what this means. If you read a commentary, literally one commentary had 14 different possibilities and then didn't even conclude with the one that he thought was the actual one because we don't really know. It's possible it's a sign of, uh, of purity, of staying strong, not perfect, but staying loyal to Jesus Christ. It's also possible that it's a reference to something that those who were invited to a special event were given some sort of stone with a particular symbol or something on it. You give it at the entrance to a wedding or a feast or something. So that is possible, and that's rather attractive, the idea of entering the new heavens, the new, the new earth, with this, this white stone, um, and on the stone, a new name. It's like, here's, here's who you are uh, without Jesus Christ, and here's who you are in Jesus Christ. You've got the name of Christ and you've got a special name, a special identity, which no one knows except him who receives it. Let me commend to you this week this letter to the church in Pergamos. Uh, let me commend to you the fact that the same, the same Savior, the same Christ, the same risen and exalted Christ is the one who lives with you He's in your car with you on the way to work. Okay, he's, uh, he's in those difficult conversations at your place of employment. Uh, he's, he's in the room when you're having a fight with your spouse or your brother or sister. He's, uh, he's, in, he's in the council room. He's the same faithful, good God uh, who has to come sometimes with some honest and holy kindness. So trust him and listen to him. 
and, uh, and pray over in particular this theme of, of the threat of a, a gentle slope towards compromise. Uh, where is that potentially happening in your life, in my life, uh, right now? Where is he prodding you? Where is he warning you? Uh, where is he uh, waking you up at this point? Uh, he knows our weaknesses. Uh, he knows our struggles. He knows our challenges. And uh, he loves us and serves us right in the middle of it until the day he comes back and gives us these kind of rewards and these kinds of blessings into, uh, into eternity. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your plan to, right from the beginning, to uh, redeem the world that had gone so wrong. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to die on our behalf, the, the cruelty of the cross that uh, captures our hearts and yet is beyond our understanding, that Son of God, that you could receive and take on the wrath of God the Father. Uh, come Holy Spirit and apply these things to our hearts and lives, especially the warning against uh, a gentle slope towards compromise in our thoughts, in our pursuits, in our dealings, in our relationship with, uh, with this world. Uh, make our hearts strong. Um, encourage us in the good news of the gospel. So in the face of temptation, in the face of alluring whispers, we might stand strong on the truth. Uh, hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.